and welcome to Well I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now and what they wish they'd known earlier, about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last years of her life. She's no longer with us, but one of the main things that her dementia taught us as a family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work, As a dementia blogger and campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable condition, not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference to everyone involved. My guest today has so many glittering achievements to her name that my introduction cannot but fail to record them all. But we've met before, and I know she's very lovely, so here goes. She began her journalistic career on the Scotsman newspaper before moving to the Sunday Standard and then heading to London to present the flagship BBC television show 60 Minutes. For many years, in between giving birth to five babies, she anchored BBC Breakfast Time in London. I have to say that even saying that makes me go all weak and wobbly, but not so our guest, who moved back to Scotland to become a presenter for Reporting Scotland, the daily national television news programme, which she does to this day. She's also hosted Daily Politics, reported for Panorama and numerous other current affairs series on both television and radio, along with presenting Songs of Praise. And as if this weren't enough, she has, according to my latest tally, written nine books, both fiction and non-fiction. And it was through one of these, the inspiring memoir of her mother, Mamie Baird, called Where Memories Go, Why Dementia Changes Everything, that I first met her. She is Sally Magnusson. Just like her journalist mother before her, she has a magical way with words. Lyrical and tender as it is, Where Memories Go also investigates dementia, and through considering the way that those with this cruel condition are treated, it poses profound philosophical questions about what it is to be human. I am beginning to conclude, Sally writes, that dementia holds a dagger to the heart of Western morality and compels us to ask whether we have any right to call ourselves a civilised society. But more than anything, the book is a celebration of her mother, Sally marvels at how, right up until the final stages of her life, when speech is almost beyond her, Mamie can still sing familiar old songs. And through her journalistic sleuthing, Sally discovers that this is because music is the one thing dementia cannot destroy. That, to use the late Oliver Sacks' memorable image, the past, which is not recoverable in any other way, is embedded in music as if in amber. In fact, to illustrate this extraordinary phenomenon, let's have a very quick listen to Sally and her mother singing Dream Angus, a traditional Scottish lullaby just a few months before Mamie died when her mixture of Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia had all but robbed her of her speech. Dreams for sale Find dreams for sale Angus is here That was a good one. 
That was a good one, Mamie, and very moving. It was this newfound knowledge about the power of music that led Sally to found, a year after Mamie died, Playlist for Life, the charity that enables the families and carers of someone with dementia to create a playlist of meaningful music on an iPod. The charity has since gone from strength to strength, and in 2018, its founder was named Scotswoman of the Year. So, Sally Magnusson, belated congratulations on that wonderful achievement in 2018, and a very, very warm welcome to Well, I Know Now. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's lovely to, I was going to say it's lovely to see you. I can't <laughs> see you, but it's lovely to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely to hear you, yeah. Um, so first, um, I'd like you to tell us a bit more about Mamie. Your memoir of her is really exquisitely written. I think I described it once as a love letter from you to her. And you obviously had a wonderful relationship with her and with both your parents. Um, your father was, of course, Magnus Magnusson of Mastermind fame. And reading where memories go, Mamie comes across as funny, passionate, warm, hugely intelligent and totally brilliant with words as you are. So I think at one point you say words were the air she breathed. So tell us more about this wonderful woman, your mum. She was pretty wonderful. I, I used to think to myself when I was much younger, I really ought to be rebelling anytime soon <laughs> against my, my my mother. And I never really could because she was always just so much fun and yeah. so somebody whose company I enjoyed so much growing up and I admired her. We She lost a, a young son when he was only 11 years old, my little brother Siggy. Mm. And I was in my mid-teens at that time, a time when you would be thinking about rebelling if you were going to do it. And instead of that, we became friends in a really deep way. Mm. I was able to observe how she was dealing with Mm. grief, the willpower that drove her to get out of bed in the morning and to continue being a, a mother to us rather than just sort of running away and putting her head under the pillow and never getting up, which she confessed to me one day was was how she felt. Mm. And so she, she was a woman of tremendous resilience and willpower, but also fun. Um, she was the life and soul of every party, despite being completely and sort of religiously teetotal. Uh, something connected, I think, to the temperance movements that her uh, own father had been part of. Mm. So she never touched a drop, but managed to be the one who would always be dancing and mm. singing mm. and leading us in jollity. Mm. And I was always much more sort of studious and, and quiet. And, I, and I, I used to just think, oh, you know, what did I do to deserve this wonderful, mm. this wonderful creature of a mother? Mm. Uh, she, she, she was also, as you say, passionately interested in words. She was a journalist. She was a good writer. She was a funny writer. Mm. Uh, she was a thoughtful writer. She thought about words. She would love to have gone to university, but mm. her parents couldn't afford it. And she, you know, she was a very good, as I think I say somewhere in the book, she was she was a very good match to my father, mm. who considered splitting an infinitive a, a capital offence. Mm. So I, I, I grew up in this kind of environment of... Um, excitement about story and about words and the use of words and the what made an eloquent sentence for instance which we could debate for hours you know well I think so that's a got it yes and I think you're I, I thought when I read about maybe that and, and particularly her skill with words and writing that 
actually, without wishing to be too sort of obsequious, you've inherited it? Well, I would love to think I've inherited something, something of that. It's, it's certainly, I have felt in myself that same kind of passion for words. Actually, it's one of the reasons I was reading, I, I read my book again, knowing that I was going to be talking to you today. Mm. And it's an agony to read something you've written a few years ago, because you, you mm. <laughs> stop every second sentence mm. thinking, oh, no, shouldn't have written that. Oh, I could have put that mm. so much mm. better. And, and your mother and father came from very different backgrounds, didn't they? Because Mamie was from um, a Glasgow tenement flat. And yes. Magnus was a much more sort of from a different sort of family altogether, I think. And obviously he was Icelandic. Yes. My father was an Icelander. He came to Edinburgh with his parents when he was eight months old. And they were fairly well-to-do Certainly in Iceland, they had been, although it was a very poor society, and they, they became a kind of part of bourgeois Edinburgh society. Whereas my mother came from working class stock in Glasgow, a, a little town just on the border of Glasgow called Rutherglen, where we subsequently went to live and, and uh, I spent half my childhood there but it was a it was very very different environment from posh Edinburgh and mm. I never realized that you know you, you grow up and you don't actually think of your parents in these terms but actually you know they were from different classes but journalism in these days was really a relatively classless occupation mm. and it yeah. was also one in which a woman could shine mm. in ways in which she really couldn't in almost any other profession mm. it was a struggle Whereas in journalism, if you could write and you had the personality to kind of put up with the boys, you could make a good career for yourself. And when my father and mother met in 1953 at the offices of the Scottish Daily Express in Edinburgh during the Edinburgh Festival of that year, my mother was, she was about four years older than my father and she was earning more money. She was she was more established. She was their star feature writer. and. Um, he was the student up from Oxford who was trying to get some holiday cash by doing reviews for the Edinburgh Festival. And she was very much the the senior journalist in the, in the partnership at that time. Yes, I think you say, don't you, in your book that he fell in love with her when you read her opening sentence to the piece about the Edinburgh Festival. Yes, that's what he always says, <laughs> because, you know, there was a lot of quite pompous yes. um, writing about the Edinburgh Festival, which he was probably doing himself, <laughs> uh, you know, to carry favour with the editors. Mm, mm. And he read this piece by her and she had started by talking about it was it was sort of empathising with a violinist who was out doing some playing in the streets to earn some, you know, some earn some money or advertise his show. And uh, she had started the piece by saying, you know, he he packed up his violin and, and walked away in the rain or or, or something mm, like that. And right. he, he just loved the fact that she had brought the human mm. into her writing in such a light mm. but very potent way. Mm. And, and it was a mark of her writing, actually. Mm. It was always tremendously human, whereas his was it tended a little bit more to the academic. And so let's get on to your, your mum's dementia. I know it's always extremely difficult to sort of know, and you say this yourself, to know when you first started to notice things were going a little bit wrong. And I think there was an incident when you'd been away with your daughter and your mum. But you again, you yourself say, but then that's looking back and I don't really know. But just sort of try and think about when it was perhaps that you first noticed things were not quite right with Mamie. 
You're right. It is it is hard to pinpoint. And I think we have this desperate urge. I know I did to find a beginning to give the experience of dementia some sort of shape by finding a beginning of it. Mm. And to this day, I'm not really very sure whether it's a truthful way of doing it or not. But it's what I remembered was the trip that we made to Mull around the turn of the millennium. And I probably remember it because I was writing a a diary at the time. I was trying to put together our genealogy. Mm. My mother's grandmother had lived, been brought up on the Isle of Mull and had been sent away in the evictions of the Highland Clearances. And I had managed to cajole her up there with me to look into where my great-grandmother had come from. And Actually, even my using that word cajole reminds me of the fact that I had to persuade her to come. And that mm. was an odd thing mm. because mm. she had she had been telling me all my life this story about her granny from the Isle of Mull who had been evicted from her home, who'd had a cow. Uh, the family had had a cow that had been taken away from them. It was their only possession and it had been taken away from them so that the family would be encouraged to leave mm. and not to not to hang on to their sort of pathetic little croft. And that mm. was the way that the landowners did actually get rid of a lot of tenants during the clearances. And I was very fascinated by this story. And I had always made up my mind that if I ever had time, I would do some genealogical research and find out whether this was true. Mm. And I just remember rushing over to my my mother's house this day before we before we I did manage to persuade her to come to Ma with me to say, Mum, I found her. I've found Annie McKechnie. I found your grandmother and Ma. And she just just had a sort of flat reaction. And it was kind mm. of, oh, oh, that's interesting. Um and then, you know, her her attention wandered immediately. And that was probably part of all sorts of other times that that happened, but it hadn't quite engaged with me. And I just remember being thrown back in my heels and mm. and feeling a bit irritated, frankly. You know, I'd mm. gone to all this trouble, this story mm. that she told me, and she wasn't interested in it any longer. But anyway, I later said to her, look, I'm, I'm going to go up there. I want to find out um, what happened to Annie McKechnie. Would you, would you like to come with me? And she said, she said, would we not get more sun in Lanzarote? And I said, well, <laughs> well Mum, going for the sun. I'm going to find out about, you know, and it's that the beginning of these sort of slightly irritable conversations, which mm. I now so regret, mm. you know, because I, it was all about me. It was all about, you know, mm. come on, this is this is my mm. project. I've got so much of, trouble over this and you're not interested. No, and that's one of your learnings, isn't it? One of the things yeah. you say you know now. But I mean, I think that's impossible for anybody. I feel exactly the same. You have these almost, I had rows with my mother really because I was worried about what she was doing to my father in terms of her seemingly selfish behaviour. And I had outright rows with her, yeah. which I later felt terrible about. Because of course, as you say, and one of the things that you know now, this sort of challenging behaviour for one to, you know, the problem really is us, not not the person. Yes. We just don't understand oh, the frustration. It's like a toddler, isn't it? The frustration of not being able to communicate. Yes, no, absolutely. And at that time, that was, you know, it was sort of very early. And mm. we, we went to Mal, I got her to, to come to Mal with me and my young daughter as well. And we had an absolutely marvellous time. And, you know, one of the things about dementia, as I would gradually discover, is that it's 
things don't happen all at once and then change forever. You know, mm. you get a little blip and then you're mm. kind of back to normal and then mm. you get another version of that same blip. And that, mm. you know, so while we were in Mal, she locked herself out of her room one night and we were in a, a boarding house and my daughter and I had one room and she had another one along the corridor and upstairs a bit. And she arrived at my room knocking on the door in the middle of the night, but without her pyjama bottoms, you know, just with her top on mm. and a, a pair of pants, I have to say. <laughs> Thank goodness, because she'd been wandering the corridor, you know, and she's, I said, well, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I locked, I went to the toilet and I locked myself out. And mm. I said, yes, but mm. why, mm. where are your pyjama <laughs> bottoms? And she just gave me a look and it was the first time I registered that this was a vacant look. Oh, and right. This look of slight vacancy mm, mm. that uh, I grew sadly very familiar with yeah, later on. But that's the first time I, I recognise it and, and it gave me a twinge of unease. And yes, then, you know, mm. seconds later, I'd ushered her into the room. She's absolutely fine. And mm. I forgot all about it. And it's only later that mm. you begin to put these incidents into a kind of pattern. Absolutely. I think one of the things I learned was that I spent my entire time afterwards saying, you know, with hindsight, or looking yes. back, or, you know, when you're relating it to somebody, you say, well, looking back now, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it, at the time? It is. Mm, so that was probably the first sort of inklings. Yeah, the first inklings that I can remember, because mm. that's another thing. I think you, you, you probably do have inklings that mm. you, <laughs> you forget yourself. You, mm. you, you know, I mean, they pass in, in the rough and tumble of life and... I must probably have been registering things subconsciously before that. But mm. but these are the ones because maybe because I was writing at that time, I was processing my thoughts more carefully than I normally would that I placed my beginning there. And But that was 12 years before yeah, she died. So that was, mm. that was, yeah, it's a long time. But, it is, but it is often, isn't yeah. it? I mean, I think the whole is, thing for yeah. my mum was probably about 15 years or longer even. Yeah. You know, it was just a very slow burn until the end when it became quite sort of rapid. Yeah. Um, but then, so Mamie was really the life and soul, as you say, and she loved singing and she could always hold a good tune. And yeah. when did you sort of realise that, I suppose that must have been quite far along the path because she presumably was beginning to lose her speech a little bit, but then you could make the differentiation between when she sang and was so fluent and when she was speaking. Just describe that a bit, how you noticed that her singing was remaining so well. That too was a very gradual thing because singing had been completely part of my mother's um essence. Mm. Uh, you, you know, if I say that, I make her sound like a sort of opera singer or a professional. You know, it was, mm. it was nothing mm. like that. Mm. And, and, and music in our family was never very, it was always a bit sort of ragged, but great fun. We had cousins who, um, there were six of them, who had all learned a musical instrument and had a little family orchestra. But you, we used to sit absolutely open-mouthed with awe and admiration when we'd see them performing. Because mm. what we did was just, you know, my mother had the Coleman paper and uh, my brother, for reasons best known to himself, had decided to learn the trumpet. So there'd be a few squawks on the trumpet mm. and, you know, a bit of the piano that somebody could do. But we were... Didn't you play the clarinet, was, Sally? That was later. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know that's a bit of a sore subject. It's well, I, I yes, I was always very conscious that I couldn't play. I really couldn't play anything. And so I, I got a clarinet for my 21st birthday and I, I learned it then for a year. 
and um, absolutely adore the clarinet mm. and adored playing it, but never went any further than my year's worth of lessons. So it still comes out at Hogmanay and everybody yeah. laughs. Sorry, basically. I digressed a bit, but, but I remember you saying yes, that. I, I know. <laughs> but but that is, that's precisely the point. I mean, Hogmanay was a, always a great musical evening. I mean, long after Hogmanay has really degenerated mm. into just a kind of booze fest, mm. it, it's mm. remained in our family a time when you, you sit around and you, you sing. And mm. my mother just sang then but she mm. sang at any other time as mm. well so if you were in a car with her mm. driving along she would see something and it would remind her of a song and off she would go mm. and because of that we tended to know a lot of her songs mm. not could never remember the words the way that she could but we knew them mm. and we found that as her dementia progressed we were spending more and more time singing with her because mm. as you know conversation can become difficult because it it goes round in circles often or you can't think of what anything to say or mm. or it just was more and more obvious that we could get better results by launching into a song what i didn't know then and found out later what i didn't notice then or maybe i did notice it without processing it mm. was that actually the process of singing of doing something musical having all the synapses lighting up in the mm. brain that the mm. musical experience does that was increasing her lucidity it was actually increasing her ability then to talk and to communicate and to sort of stay with us but I didn't really connect that I didn't really oh, connect it up until much later that even after she'd finished the singing her talking would be better there was a sort of legacy effect Yes, and not necessarily better in the sense that, well, yes, actually I am saying better in the sense of more understandable, but also just more to the point, mm. just that she could be completely out of it. I mean, it's mm. different at different stages, of course, and I'm talking about, you know, fairly late on the experience, mm. but mm. she could be completely out of it, perhaps sunk in depression mm. uh, or, mm. or perhaps the opposite, perhaps mm. very mm. agitated mm. and it would be difficult to calm her down or to get a decent conversation going. And gradually what we started to do was just to not to attempt the conversation, just mm. to sing. Mm. And then we would sing for a little bit mm. and then you'd be able to talk. And mm. the conversation, whether it was particularly intelligible or not, always sort of by the by, but, yes. but it, conversation could proceed. And it was as if something had been restored absolutely yes and and I, I hear that actually a lot and not just with singing it has to be said but if any other sort of people hesitate to call them therapies but the, you know whether it's music or sometimes it might be art or poetry but this very beneficial effect and music for reasons I want to go on and talk to you about is particularly beneficial because of the way it affects mm. the brain but it does have this lingering effect you know this this good feeling and this sort of slight improvement does seem to carry on for a bit. I mean, people, even if they go to reminiscence day centres, their relatives or carers will say to me, and it does, it's not just the two hours they're here. It remains yeah. when they get home for several hours and then they'll yes. sort of go back down again. And actually, Sally, I'm, I'm just going to play another piece here because I think when you and your mum, you kindly sent me some recordings, were singing a few songs, actually, and it was just a few months before your mum died. And another one was, you know, it's a lovely day tomorrow. Tomorrow is a lovely day. Mm. And I think you can hear her sort of speaking a little bit in between that 
and there'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover, which she also sings. And you can hear that the singing is stronger, you know, interestingly, than the yeah. speech. But, you know, interesting that it fires up the neurons and then she's able to sort of motor along at a bit higher level with her speech. So let's just hear a little bit of you two singing now. This was just a few months before Mamie died. Now what about... It's a lovely day, day tomorrow. tomorrow. Tomorrow is a lovely day. Come and feast your tears dies on tomorrow's you know very close to the end really where, mm. where she was she was mumbling and you can and hear it, that it, mm. it was difficult to mm. get mm. to get very much sense from her and yet when you hear her laying her harmonies mm. on mm. you know this this instinctive musical mm. memory which which mm. never never deserted her mm. and you hear the words she's not 100% there with the words but mm. By Jove, she can still get them in the right order, and, mm, and absolutely, it only requires a little sort of hint from me. And exactly, she's, and she's off there. You know, listening to it now, I mean, of course, I, I find it incredibly moving now to hear that. But I know now so much more than I did then about mm. what that music was doing to her. Back then, I mm. just had an instinct for it. I just knew there was something mm. important happening, but mm. it was only later that I, mm. I investigated what was happening. Absolutely. I want to talk about that, the investigation she made, because I have to say that I think, for anybody listening, that the simple layperson's explanation you give of why music, singing it, listening to it, is so powerful for somebody, even in the most advanced stages of dementia. It's one of the clearest accounts and I've read quite a bit around dementia now that I've read or heard. But just to mention then that another thing you said you did learn was that, in fact, the answer to a lot of it all for your with your mum was music. But you you, you did realise, because I think it was probably such a, an obvious thing in a way, wasn't it? It was just so obvious. It, you can hear it when we hear her singing now towards the end there, the difference it makes. But t- yeah. take us back to when you, you went to New York, I believe, to investigate all this. And you met various people, didn't you? Frank uh, Gunmore, and you know, you really well. You looked at the place where memories go through a microscope, yes, as it were. I did, I did this after she died. When I was putting where memories go together, while she was still alive, I was keeping the bare bones of the memoir, really, which I wrote really just to hang on to her in words, really, while mm. she was with me. I started to write down the things I wanted to remember: the way she combed her hair, the way she put her lipstick on, the way she spoke, the way she sang. I wrote these down and it developed into a diary which developed in time into a a rather angry document as I began to understand what a a lonely, 
place it was to be the carer of somebody with advanced mm-hmm. dementia in a society that didn't understand it. Absolutely. But afterwards, after she died, I then thought I can make this a book that will help other people. Yeah. And one of the ways in which I can help other people is to investigate some of the things that I didn't know at the time and some of the things that I need to know more about. And one of these was music. I had observed it, but I didn't understand yet whether this was a universal phenomenon or whether we had just been lucky. We had this song-infused mother who had responded so beautifully to song right up until literally the, the day she died. Or, you know, was there was there something more here that people should know about? And I began researching and I found that in the Bronx in New York, there was a big care facility which was run there by, among other people, Connie Tomeno, who's the world's leading music therapist, mm. and Dr. Oliver Sacks, now the, the late mm. Oliver Sacks, but he's a neurologist who had begun to show a great interest in the effect of music on the brain. And they were basically treating patients there with music and observing what happened to them. They had a number of people uh, who who were in various stages of dementia and they were reporting wonderfully beneficial effects of the kind that we've described of, of, of people becoming joyful, of people becoming more lucid, of people coming back in really meaningful ways to who they were. Mm. Not forever, it wasn't a cure, but it was moments of happiness Mm. and of identity that that were incredibly important. And you referred to Oliver Sacks' quote about the amber beads of memory, which was a lovely one. And so I talked to Connie Tomeno and I can remember sitting in her office and becoming so excited when she talked about music and how it was virtually the one thing that that dementia could not destroy. Mm. And I had never seen this anywhere else. Nobody had ever told me in all these long Mm. 12 years, nobody had ever mentioned to me that there was something that dementia couldn't destroy. Mm. Everything I knew Mm. about dementia Mm. was that it destroyed everything. Mm. So that was exciting. And I came back and I began looking into the effect of music in the brain. I mean, not field that a huge amount of research had yet been done in. There's there's more now. Mm. I talked to a professor called Pieter Janata who was trying to do medical research in this area and finally it was very difficult to get funding for it. Mm. But what became clear was that music, which is seated in the deepest part of the brain cell, along with all our most primal instincts like sleeping and breathing and mm. the sexual impulse in there was music mm. so it's in you from before you're born mm. it's what the fetus responds to in the womb mm. and it's the last sense as hearing goes at the very mm. end of mm. life it's the last sense that goes as well mm. and in between it is the most extraordinary phenomenon because it has the power to evoke memory and not just memory in terms of listening to a piece of music and thinking, aha, I remember where I was, you know, when I heard Mm. that piece of music, but memory in the form of emotion, Mm. memory in the form of identity, Mm. of who we are. Mm. And it's done because music itself is so profoundly 
complex its effect on the brain mm. that every little bit of effect that goes into music, whether that's tempo or beat or rhythm mm. or accent mm. or word or, mm. you know, all of it, they all take different paths. They all require different synapses, different connections in the brain. Mm. And what seems to be happening with dementia, although I'm not sure that this has yet been shown in trials. I know that Peter Giannato was trying to do them when I talked to him all these years ago and hadn't been able to. But what seems to be happening is that music is bypassing some of the damaged areas of the brain mm. in dementia mm. because what the various forms of dementia do is they kill mm. off cells mm. and music is finding other ways mm. other routes through to emotion and to word memory mm. and to musical memory and to mm. all sorts of complex complex and another thing I found so tremendously exciting and, and indeed moving was to think of all the people all the many, many thousands of people sitting sometimes in care homes written off, written off as even kindly written off, but as shells of themselves who have nothing going on inside. And yet you play a piece of music that matters to somebody mm. and you see a foot twitching mm. and you see a hand mm. tapping the side of a chair. Mm. That suggests enormous mental activity mm. the, you know mm. the activity the brain activity to respond with a tapping foot to a piece of music is enormous yes it if you think about millions it, it must of, be. Mm. millions of neurons mm. this is not a shell no. this is not an empty mind actually at all mm. and if you can find that way into a person all sorts of other things can flower yes because as you know yourself once you find the right path yes into somebody who's who you're finding it difficult to connect with yes it's usually because you just haven't found the way mm. and once you find that way so much more comes out of it it's it's wonderful mm. and it's interesting as well the part that emotion plays in that because of course people with even the most severe dementia the one thing they do people say don't they well say to me actually so I, I know a couple of people with dementia will say well I, I can't remember who you are but I know you're nice I can remember yeah. the emotion that, well, obviously they're not talking like this to me, but they can obviously remember the emotion that I elicit in them. And, and this emotional sort of intelligence, if you like, is still there. Yeah, no, completely. And my mother's emotional intelligence was, yeah, was there for a long, long time. And, mm. and again, it's about, you know, we're darting all over the place in this conversation, but again, it's about recognising how much that person still has to bring to the table you know, mm. despite the fact that certain things have gone mm. and certain things make all sorts of older ways of living and being difficult, mm. there's still an extraordinary amount there. Yes, it's a matter of being able to catch hold of it, isn't it, as you say? Mm. And then you find it. So, that, that, no, it was extraordinary. And just to sort of connect with you on that level, I my mum didn't sing, but I don't know if you've read about this, but you know, my mum, the day before she died, and she'd been lying without doing anything, really, because like you, I, I didn't, well, not like you, because you, your mum did sing, but I didn't know how to connect with my mum. Mm. I was beyond anything, really. And I went, on what turned out to be the day before she died, it was Christmas Eve, and I just suddenly thought, oh, we can listen to the Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College, Cambridge. And it always begins with Once in Royal Dover's City, and my mum absolutely loved Christmas, and 
when the chorister, the lone voice, started to sing, she just opened her eyes and she hadn't even done that for weeks. And that was all she did, but it was very moving because she sort of connected. It was a definite connection. And then, you know, she listened with her eyes open and then they sort of fluttered shut and then she remained and then I went home again and then the next day she died and she died just before I got there. So it was always this tremendous thing for me and I had absolutely no idea. It was only complete chance that I suddenly thought she loves Christmas. We'll listen to the Nine Lessons and Carols. And she, you know, she listened to that every Christmas all her life and she was 90. So it was almost written in her DNA. Um, yeah, and what I, it's so wonderful. And what I say to people now is that if your mother, your father, your spouse enjoyed Christmas and, you know, loves Christmas carols, play them in July. You know, yeah. don't wait for December. No, quite, you know? quite. <laughs> you know? Yes. Offer that. Yes. Offer that because, as you say, it's the connection that matters. Yes, and it will fill them with a warm glow. I mean, yeah. you know, um, Christmas is, can be a tricky time for some people. But in our family, it was always a lovely kind of family time. Yeah, and I know she would have loved that. So with this incredible amount of information that you'd gone out and set out to gather and discovered, you then set up Playlist for Life. Just explain to everybody, I mean, I did really explain what it is, but just give us your, as the founder, give us your take on it. And then perhaps you could just bring us up to date with all that you're doing with it now. I found a playlist for life because as a result of talking to Connie Tomeno and Oliver, well, I didn't speak to Oliver Sachs, but hearing about their work, I heard about the, the work of a chap called Dan Cohen in New York, who was taking that same work into care homes and introducing music to the residents there on iPods. He was going in with an iPod, he was talking to families, he was putting a little playlist on an iPod and having wonderful results with this. And I phoned him up, we had a Skype conversation, I said, I'm fascinated with your work. I said, is anybody doing this in Britain? It seems such a great idea. And he said, he said, I'm pretty sure nobody's doing it in Britain because lots of people have asked me this question, Mm. so I assume nobody is. What year was this, Sally? What year was this? It was 2012. It was the end of the year after my mother died. I spent the next few months after she died researching for the book. And I had sort of done the research, but I had this nagging feeling that this had to be more than just researching. I felt I was in possession of something incredibly powerful. Mm. And that was an idea, a simple, simple idea you know, it was Dan Cohen's idea before it was my idea, but it was one that I could offer to other people. I just needed to tell people. I thought, you know, we stumbled on this music thing by accident. Mm. How many families are in the fairly desperate situation that I describe in Where Memories Go with our family, where you just don't know what to do and where to turn and where to find Mm. solace Mm. and how to help. Mm. And I thought, you know, music is not the whole answer, but it can help. Mm. And I have to tell people. Mm. And so I began talking about this playlist on an iPod idea when I was talking about the book to people. And before I knew where I was, people were starting to offer me money and saying this is a great idea, Sally, you know, here's a contribution to your campaign. I didn't realise it was a campaign at that point, but I thought, you know what it is, but if you're going to accept money, you need to be a charity. So I became a charity 
and gathered some people around me to help get this idea across. And that's really how it started. It was just a communications exercise to see how many ways we could get across, you know, the fact that music could help. And by 2014, Where Memories Go came out and it was serialised on Radio 4. And there was a huge response to the book. It was like a kind of opening of floodgates as so many people who had experienced the trauma yes. of dementia I'm and not the surprised. stigma of dementia, mm. you know, had and had mm. not known how to not only not spoken about it, but mm. hadn't known that other people might respond in the same way to them, that other daughters might lose Absolutely. their tempers. Absolutely, isn't that, I get, know. even little old me gets told that so much when I'm talking yeah. about it, and people say, oh, thank you for saying that, because that's just how I felt. Yeah, it was terrific, because that was exactly why I had written the book, mm. and the charity began to grow off the back of that, in a way mm. that interest helped to stimulate mm what I was doing, mm. what I was doing with music so that I was able to say, you know, when I was being interviewed mm. about the book, I would say, and and one of the things we discovered was this and Playlist for Life is doing that. And gradually it's grown. So the actual founding, I started talking about it at the end of 2012. It was founded in June 2013 and gradually it developed into training care home staff mm. so that they would understand the difference between just putting a radio on or Vera Lynn on a loop in mm -hmm. a care home mm -hmm. and actually the profoundly person-centred exercise that there is in finding out somebody's musical past yeah. and using that as a form of therapy so that it's not just something that the activities coordinator does on a Wednesday afternoon. Yes. It's actually, and in many care homes this is now happening, it's yes. actually part of the care plan. Yes. So that if it's known that Mrs. Smith really is terrified of having a bath, then, you know, an hour before bath time, you play Mrs. Smith her music, the music yes. that you know is going to calm her yes. down and is going to make her feel more herself. Yes. And the same with somebody who finds eating a challenge mm. or mm. the sundowner blues or whatever it mm. might be. Mm. And for, for busy, busy care homes, that's not something that can be easily or thoughtlessly incorporated into care plans. It really needs to be thought through by people who are really committed to the effect that they're trying to achieve and so what we do is help care homes to do that to train their staff and the care inspectorate in in scotland and the care commission in england became interested in it mm. and we're able to train people up and down the country mm. families care homes we now have what we call help points we got a big grant last year from the National Lottery Community Fund, which we're very grateful for, which enabled us to set up. Yeah. Brilliant. Enabled us to, to set up help points in libraries and mm. churches and all sorts of different places and communities where families can go and get a cup of tea with mm. somebody with dementia and find out about the best ways of collecting their musical memories. Because, you know, it sounds easy and it can be easy. It was easy in our family because we knew exactly what my mother liked. But mm. in other families, not everybody knows what music mattered to their parents, say, at an earlier stage. We often mm. hear from people, oh, I, you know, my father hated music. I never heard him play anything. And then you say to him, well, did he ever play songs 
in the car when you were going on holiday or mm. did he ever go to church? Oh, yes, he went to church. Well, there were there hymns you sang at church. Yes, it's normally a bit of your life, isn't it? I remember my father, he was in the war. He wasn't at all bellicose or militaristic, but uh, he served in the Second World War and it was a huge part of his life, as it was for a lot of people who'd served. And at his funeral, as his coffin came out of the church, he'd asked for the Rudetsky March, which we wouldn't necessarily have known at all. But luckily he'd written it down and that's what he wanted because that's just a connection with the war, for him a hugely significant bit of his life. What would you have? What have you got on your playlist for life, Sally? <laughs> she says we're being really oh, cruel. <laughs> yes, well, I've got quite a few that are connected with my mother, hmm. because so much of my childhood and my growing up was these Hogmanays or Christmases or birthday parties when we would just all sing together. And one of the great favourites of my mother and her two sisters was the ink spots Java Jive. I like coffee, I like tea, mm. I like a Java Jive. And it like yes. uh, drop of a hat, the yes. three of them would sing in various layers of harmony, which which made it a great uh, It is a great lovely party sort of piece. Yeah, it is a lovely yeah. song, isn't it? Yes. So that would be on it and oh all sorts of Scottish ballads like the Round Tree, uh, mm. which is one of my favourites and now is overlain with memories of my mother because in the days when we used to get her over to our house on a, a Sunday for Sunday lunch and we would sit in the conservatory beside the kitchen afterwards mm. and from there you can see down to the bottom of our garden where we have the most lovely round tree mm. and the round tree has gorgeous scarlet berries in autumn mm. just absolutely divine and every time my mother saw these she would start to sing the round tree and then and then I would sing with her and she would immediately this was my mother's habit if you ever started to sing anything with her she would immediately go into a harmony oh. and leave you tottering along with the melody line while she sort of <laughs> swooped swooped Did around yes. The, yes. You know, the harmony she was always a much better singer than me but you know, these are the songs that are predominant on my playlist. Mm. And, and there's, a, you know, Mozart's clarinet concertos up there as well, because I tried for so many <laughs> years to play it so unsuccessfully, but I still absolutely adore it. And I think it would bring back my rather erratic clarinet playing days to me. Yeah, well, thank you very, very much, Sally. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I feel I know your mother, who I already felt pretty well, I thought <laughs> I knew pretty well through your book, but I now, you know, it's wonderful hearing you talk about her and the way that music percolated her life and what you've gone on to do with that. And uh, I think she'd be tremendously proud of how you've used her love of music to help other people with dementia. Yeah. Thank you very much. I hope, I hope she would. And thank you for your podcast. This is a wonderful series, by the way. I hope you'll do more. I plan to come back for a second series in October because it has been remarkably good fun, actually, for me. And hopefully other people have enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, all power to your elbow, Pippa. You do a great job. Thank you, Sally. I remember when I first read Sally's memoir of her mother, Where Memories Go, how I marvelled at the seamless beauty of the prose. Early on in the book, Sally describes what she is doing. I tap late into the night, eager to round up your slippery self before it slides into yet another shape. If I can only pin you by the bullet point, secure you with headings, trap you in words, corral you within a list, then perhaps I can hold you beside me here forever. The mother who clapped her hands to see the snow at night, who has lost so much of herself, but not yet, 
not yet, the thrill of being alive. This is pitch-perfect writing. It goes to the heart of what it is to watch someone you love succumb to dementia. The book also relates more clearly than anything I've read before or since, what Alzheimer's does to the brain and why music has the power to withstand it. And then, contained within its pages, is another wider story of society and its attitude to those who are old and frail, vulnerable and, though this is so often forgotten, valuable, unique, human. But Mamie, a Magnus Magnusson's daughter, is far more than a superlative and prolific writer, far more even than a highly skilled journalist and polished broadcaster. In Playlist for Life, she has founded one of the most successful music and dementia charities. To do something like this is a hard slog. It is altruistic and generous, not traits always associated with hacks. I have nothing but admiration for Sally Magnusson. She is hugely talented, hardworking, kind, and great fun too. It has been a privilege to meet her through my dementia work, and it was a joy to interview her. In fact, it's been a joy recording this whole series, mostly during lockdown. And as people really do seem to have enjoyed listening to it too, I'll be back with the second series in October. I already have a long list of quite brilliant guests lined up. Playlist for Life can be found at playlistforlife, or one word, .org.uk. And Sally's latest novel, The Ninth Child, published by John Murray, is out now and available on Amazon. And finally, we're being played out today for this series finale by my daughter Emily singing A Rowan Tree, which Sally mentioned as one of her and her mother's favourite Scottish ballads. And there's rather a sweet symmetry to this, as Emily has just graduated from Edinburgh University, which is where Sally herself went. So that's it for now. Thank you for listening. And goodbye until October. Have a really great summer. Oh, Rowan Tree or of thou'lt I be dear to me. Entwines thou art with many times, O hame and infancy. Thy leaves were I, the first of spring, thy flowers the summer's pride. There was nae sick a bonny tree in all the countryside. O Rowan How fair was thou in summer time with thy the clusters wide. How rich and gay thy autumn dress with berries red and bright. On thy fair stem were many names, which now ne'er I see. But there engraven in my heart, forgotten ne'er can be. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast 
and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.